Welcome to CCFA Perspectives on ReachMD, providing Crohn's and colitis updates, driving innovation in IBD research, education, and clinical support. This series is produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Heller, the Chief Scientific Officer at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and we're at our annual conference in Orlando, Florida. This is CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. Joining me today to discuss extraintestinal findings in IBD is Dr. Christina Ha, Assistant Clinical Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Ha, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Heller. It is really our pleasure, and we really appreciate your taking your time out of your busy schedule to meet with of us course. today. So we have a few questions. We'd really like to talk to you about this important topic. First of all, could you help us define the extraintestinal findings in IBD? Which are the most common, and which findings can we not afford to miss? The first extraintestinal manifestations of IBD are conditions that are actually associated with the diagnosis of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Some of these conditions are actually associated with active symptoms of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and some are independent. In terms of the ones that are the most common, inflammatory arthropathies or arthralgias are among the most common. Up to about 10 to 15% of persons with IBD will experience them. But there's different types. Type 1, for example, it impacts the large joints, predominantly the knees and the hips and maybe the elbows. And it actually corresponds with active disease. For example, if somebody is experiencing flares of ulcerative colitis, they may actually complain of knee pain. And one of the earliest symptoms and the earliest ways to treat those is to get their colitis under control. That being said, there are also types of arthropathies that are independent of disease activity. And those tend to involve the peripheral or the smaller joints, like the hands and the fingers. And because they're independent of disease activity, controlling, let's say, active colitis may or may not impact these joint-related symptoms. So in those circumstances, establishing close contact with a rheumatologist who knows about these extraintestinal manifestations are important. There are other extraintestinal manifestations that we should be aware of as well. For example, ones that involve the skin. For example, sometimes you can develop painful skin nodules on, let's say, the extensor surfaces of the legs. That's called erythema nodosum, and they can be very painful to the touch. Those do tend to correspond with disease activity, unlike another condition, which is very ulcerative and tender, again on the extensor surfaces or in rare circumstances around a stoma if a patient has an ostomy, and that's called pyoderma gangrenosum. Those are very important to recognize because they can lead to some scarring. So close association with a dermatologist who's familiar is important. Finally, I wanted to mention two other extraintestinal manifestations that are important. One many of us are aware of. It's called primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's an autoimmune liver condition that tends to be more associated with inflammatory colitis, but it's very important to recognize it early on because it has implications in terms of the surveillance for patients with ulcerative colitis because it does have an increased risk for the development of high-grade dysplasia as well as colon cancer. And the other one that's not traditionally considered an extraintestinal 
intestinal manifestation, but we really do need to be keenly aware of is the increased risk of thromboembolism. And this can occur both in arterial vessels as well as within the veins. And missing a venous thromboembolic event, for example, can actually lead to some pretty important consequences. So you mentioned one finding that was would be particularly noteworthy in ulcerative colitis. Could you elaborate a little more on which of these extra intestinal manifestations are more relevant in Crohn's disease or in ulcerative colitis? Interestingly, the extraintestinal manifestations can be present for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. It does appear to be a little bit more prominent in the inflammatory colitis phenotype. So if you have Crohn's colitis or ulcerative colitis compared to, let's say, isolated small bowel disease, some people consider perianal disease to be an extraintestinal manifestation, but that's a type of disease behavior within Crohn's disease. Now, there are also extraintestinal manifestations that are the result of some of the therapeutic interventions that we have for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, particularly some of the biologic medications, such as the anti-tumor necrosis factor agents. And those can be TNF-associated lupus syndromes, as well as one that we're increasingly more aware of, such as psoriasis associated with anti-TNFs and certain types of skin cancers. So as we're treating our patients, we have to be aware of the potential for these extraintestinal manifestations as we're obtaining our history and doing our physical exams, but particularly as we're prescribing and making recommendations for our patients and making sure that they have appropriate surveillance and follow-up with the right teams. Very important points. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to CCFA Perspectives Crohn's and Colitis Update on ReachMD at CCFA's annual meeting. I am Dr. Karen Heller, and I am speaking with Dr. Christina Ha, Assistant Clinical Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of California, Los Angeles. So to continue with discussing this topic, what kinds of testing and examination are needed to identify these extraintestinal findings, and what should patients be looking out for? Most importantly is you have to talk to your patient, and you have to examine your patient, and you have to be familiar with these extraintestinal manifestations and be aware that they can occur regardless of disease activity. So... When you're talking to a patient in a follow-up visit or an initial consult, you do want to ask about the presence of joint pain or if there's oral ulcers or aphthous ulcers. You want to ask if they've ever had any history of abnormal liver chemistries. You want to ask if they've ever had any painful skin nodules or ulcerating skin rashes. As a routine healthcare maintenance, we do recommend following their liver enzymes closely. And if you start to see elevations that are more hepatobiliary in nature, for example, with elevations in the alkaline phosphatase, in particular bilirubin or maybe some associated elevations in AST-ALT, then actually have a low threshold, especially among inflammatory colitis patients, to follow that up with appropriate imaging to diagnose PSC because that can be initially asymptomatic but very important to diagnose, and you don't want to miss that by having a patient present with cholangitis. So what current therapeutic interventions help address these extraintestinal issues most effectively? Breaking it down, we have actually the most information on some of the dermatologic manifestations as well as the rheumatologic manifestations. Importantly for the inflammatory arthropathies, if they involve the large joints, typically treating the underlying ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis is sufficient. But for the patients with type 2 or the small joint peripheral arthropathies, oftentimes it does require an additional immunosuppressive or 
or more importantly, a biologic agent. So our rheumatology colleagues tend to find that a concomitant use of an anti-TNF tends to alleviate many of the inflammatory arthropathy symptoms. And sometimes if those symptoms are more prevalent than the actual luminal disease activity, patients may still be recommended to be on a biologic because of the potential impact on their quality of life. For some of the dermatologic manifestations, a course of corticosteroids, for example, to treat erythema nodosum may be appropriate, but pyoderma gangrenosum really does involve coordinated care with a dermatologist. As local wound care is important, sometimes intralesional injections into these specific areas of activity are important, but anti-TNF therapies and biologics are traditionally the foundation for treating pyoderma. We really want to thank you so much. To our guest, Dr. Christina Ha, for joining us today at this very busy annual meeting. We really appreciate your insights on this challenging question and this very, very important clinical topic. Thank you. So I am your host, Dr. Karen Heller. To access this episode and others in this series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. This has been CCFA Perspectives on ReachMD, produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. For access to this and other episodes, and to download the ReachMD app, visit reachmd.com forward slash CCFA.